You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already learn from their mistakes and from their successes, find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. You're listening to a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series. My guest today is Nicole Hanscom. Nicole has been an operations director and legal administrator for almost 20 years. She's a law firm management and marketing advisor at How to Manage a Small Law Firm and the founder and owner of Radical Administration in the Tampa, Florida area. Nicole is not a reformed lawyer, though. That is a lawyer who transitioned into a non-legal profession. Nicole was an operations director, essentially with her hand in everything having to do with management and operations at the public defender's office in Tampa, Florida. And then she went to law school. And then she became a reformed lawyer, realizing that what she really loved was operations and running a business. She has a real knack for it. She's a self-proclaimed geek about business processes, tech tools, employee development, and business. And I can say from my own personal experience with Nicole that she's a no-nonsense, tough-as-nails, practical, and pragmatic boss who knows how to hire, fire, run a business, and get shit done. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Nicole. Okay, you are listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. This is an episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series. And my special guest today is Nicole Hanscom. She is an attorney and now a coach for How to Manage a Small Law Firm. Welcome, Nicole. Yes, thank you for having me. Of course. I'm a business advisor and coach. It's a fun new title. Oh, is that's a new one? Yeah, it's a fu- it's a fun new position for me. Yeah. Well, I don't want to make this about how to manage a small law firm, but did I just hear correctly that now there is how to manage a small business? Yeah, you may have heard that correctly. <laughs> I don't, is it not official yet? I don't um, it's official. No, wait a second. I yeah. heard our John. Yes. It's, well, I mean, I actually don't know that that's up and official yet. Well, I heard our John. They've talked about it forever. And I know as part of the, some, some other stuff that was going on, they were talking about, I think it's definitely a website that's up, but I don't know if the company's up. I listened to our John on David Nagel's podcast this morning. Well, then you I heard it might direct act- from the source. Yes, I heard Arjun say oh, it, uh, and I'm wondering, yeah, and I think 
It was. I'm trying to look for food. I don't want to play yeah, it. That's like the wave. The date was. A podcast on a podcast. Have we gone that meta? Yes. We're playing a podcast on a podcast. Meta okay. I can't see the date that this was published. I, it was obviously very recently. I think it might have been last weekend. But yeah. So are you going to be one of the coaches for how to manage a small business or you strictly how to manage a small law firm? My attention right now is solely focused on how to manage a small law firm. Okay. So we just did a and, and, and my husband's business, I guess that I'm also building that business. Okay. Don't you have your own little coaching business too? I wasn't a coach. So I had radical administration. Um, I was an on-site fractional legal administrator. So I wasn't a coach. I was a doer. Um, I wasn't uh, let me teach you how to fish. It was, oh, get the fuck out of the way and give me the fishing pole. Just let me do it for that you. Is, yeah. That's, that like I, you. Parach I parachuted in. That sounds like you. Yeah. Well, okay. So why don't we, let's, let's move back a little bit. Cause usually what I do is I start out with my first question is where did you go to college and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I thought I wanted to be, so um, Instagram wasn't a thing. Cell phones actually weren't a thing. Um, but if they had been, I would have been one of those travel fashion music bloggers, like lifestyle blogger. I probably should have been the very first one. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Condé Nast editor. Oh, me um, too. That's, that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to live in London and that's what I thought I was going to do. So, um, I went to sure Florida. You sure did go astray somewhere. <laughs> we blame, we blame my husband. Um, I went to Florida state university, uh, for three years and they had a fellowship program with FAMU, uh, Florida A&M university where they, I, they could do a fellowship in journalism. Um, because I thought that's what I was going to do, and I I ran the FS View. I <laughs> I was I was the editor of the college newspaper, and um, I did all that stuff. And then I um, had to come back to Tampa, which which is where I'm from, Tampa, Florida. Uh, and I finished out my degree at the University of South Florida. Why and did you have to come back? I needed to get out of Tallahassee. All, all good people should get out of, <laughs> find themselves where they need to get out of Tallahassee. <laughs> well, if you wanted to work for Condé Nast, how come you didn't go to school in New York? Because um, my very solid value, middle-class value parents said, uh, you have Florida prepaid and you have a Florida uh, tuition scholarship and if you go to FSU, you don't have to pay for anything. We'll pay for your car. We'll do this. My dad really wanted me to be a Seminole. Um, That's and so I said, I said, that sounds, that sounds really easy. And, <laughs> and that sounds at like 17 year old me was like, okay. Well, yeah, so I, was, I was 17. If college is paid so, for. Yeah. College was not only college was paid for, everything was paid for. Um, so long as I did that. So was your plan that you were going to hit the road at some point, end up in the big apple? 
Oh, Christina, I was 17. I, I had so many plans and no plans all at the same time. That's so <laughs> right? That makes sense. Right? What was I, I going to do? Like I, a business owner with no business plan. That's, <laughs> that's exactly. I had, I, it wasn't even well-formed enough to call it a dream, right? Like, I guess I thought I would, um, I guess I thought I would mosey my way to New York or California eventually. So you got your journalism degree. Right. right. It ended up being, uh, yeah, technical, technical writing and English literature. So I, I got that major. I minored in just about everything someone can minor in. Like what? Give me some examples. I went around it. I went around and collected like just bizarre, like women's studies, religious studies. Um, what was my other minor? I had a minor in philosophy. <laughs> I, I ended up with a whole lot of college credits before I graduated. Well, I think that was probably smart because I remember I was in a big hurry to graduate in four years because people used to make fun of the kids that stayed. I was not. Yeah, I was not in a hurry to graduate in four years. I started college at 17. So I was like, I can't even drink. <laughs> like, I can't. Yeah. So I, yeah, that was a good plan. If I could still go to college and not do anything else, I would, that would be great. So you got out, you finished, where, what'd you do? What'd you do for work? I worked at the Hillsborough County Public Defender's Office, the Tampa Public Defender's Office. Um, she, uh, Julie Holt was the elected public defender. My parents knew her because uh, they were both business owners and she had represented them for their business. Um, but she was really predominantly a criminal defense attorney in Tampa who got elected public defender. And my parents said, um, my daughter needs a job, will you hire her? And she said, is she smart? And they said, yes. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. Um, so I went to work at the public defender's office and my very first job there was um, doing data entry. It was my job to close cases in the case management system. And my office was built out of the boxes of files that I, so I had a cubicle that was built out of the boxes of files. And we knew that it had been a successful summer if I no longer had an office at the end of it. I was going to say, <laughs> it sounds more like a fort. <laughs> yes, it was. It is. It's a criminal defense file fort. <laughs> So I, I think I'm starting to see where this is going because I was going to ask you, well, uh, if you wanted to be in journalism and you started looking through the classified ads, because that's probably no. what you did back then. Okay. So that's yeah, what yeah. there. So did you start to like it? Did you drink the Kool-Aid? I uh, drink the Kool-Aid is a really funny expression. Um, yeah. So I decided to bloom where I was planted. Um, I met a boy and I was 19 and, um, had like a cush job during the day and, you know, didn't have to stretch my brain too much, was going to school. They were flexible around my, my school schedule, went tonight, went out clubbing every night, <laughs> just had like a really cush, like a really cush 1996 and on and um just sort of stayed and yeah when you say drink the kool-aid absolutely became uh, we could talk we could tell stories about it later but yeah became fully immersed in the culture of, of the public defender 
Absolutely. Are they partiers? Oh, for sure. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, wow. Criminal, the criminal defense bar, the prosecutors, um, knew that the court reporters, they all hang out together. They all socialize together. Um, so there's, there's that culture. And then there's the, of which, of which I definitely had some great friendships and some really good times at the PD's office. So at what point did the Condé Nast aspirations kind of just go away? I don't think they even went away until I just realized one day, fuck, I'm 40 with a kid. I'm probably not going to pick up and <laughs> it, could still happen. it could still happen. Um, I have the job I have now for a very specific reason. You know, I can do this. I can do my job from anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we've talked a, bit, a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, you know, at some point then, I guess, I mean, I don't want to, I want you to. Maybe I'll be the, I'll be the, a, I'll be the AARP Instagram influencer. You could be. Um, who's that lady? Oh God. I can't remember her name now. She's this Iris Apfel. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. I love her. Oh, she's totally amazing. Um, yeah. So we're recording this during the COVID experience, just in case anyone listens to this like months later. I was, the COVID. I was driving to the office this morning. There's nobody here. I was driving to the office thinking about, you know, who is taking care of Betty White right now? Um, so Betty White and our um, RBG have been <laughs> quarantined together and, and I hope are being monitored 24-7 and having their every need attended to. They are probably drinking heavily. They need to be. Those two um, can party. Well, <laughs> seriously, we need to keep them both alive. I They're know. very important national treasures right now. They are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you, you're doing front work for a public defender's office. Mm -hmm. So where do we go from there? What happened next? Next. Um, someone invented the mouse, the computer mouse. And I was not expecting my, to go there. <laughs> my, my, my boss came to me and said, you know how to use computers, right? So this was this was before everyone had like a desktop computer. Okay, so this was in the days of your work on a computer. We had a, it was a mainframe, and your right there was like five there was like five computers in the firm oh that were all hooked up to the mainframe. That's um, crazy. Like, so we, I want to get everybody. Um, at the time, they were all PCs. I want to get everybody a PC. Um, I need to teach people how to use them. You know how to use them, right? And I said, yeah. Um, Were you so will you? No, I don't know. I know how to use them. She's like, so will you be the trainer? So I went from data entry clerk to being the trainer. So I had to train the, I think at the time we had a hundred people working in the, working at the firm. Um, so yeah, I trained a hundred people. I got to know, every single person in the entire office because I had to train them all on how to log into windows and double click on an icon. And that that's, you know, that is and so funny. So that was my second job. I went from data entry clerk to being a trainer. What year was that? Oh gosh. I can't, I, um, well, let's see. So it was 96. 
Okay, because I always try to figure out, you know, when we all start relying on computers, but that sounds about right. Windows. I'm trying to remember when I actually got it. So I can tell you. Okay, so I'll tell you. It was actually, I had to train everyone on Windows Windows 3.1. So when was that? So Windows 3.1 came out in 92. Okay, so I graduated from high school in 93. Yeah. So, um, so Windows 3.1 had been out for a little while, so I knew how to use it and that's what they were like installing. So that's, so I became the computer trainer and that became my job. And I became the person who learned every piece of technology there was, there was no such thing as Outlook. We used, I think it was called GroupWise was our email system and everybody used WordPerfect for, for document drafting. And I became the expert on all of it. That became my job. Okay. And then what happens next? And then I learned how much I liked being the expert <laughs> on technology and how attorneys could use it to do their jobs. And I really liked being um, the go-to person to figure out how, how the attorneys could do their jobs better. And I really, really liked that we used computers and the state attorney didn't. And that we were using computers and cops weren't doing it yet. And we were like more technologically advanced than other people. And I just really thought that was cool. And you're not really doing grunt work. I mean, I jokingly said you were doing grunt work, but you're- Oh, I was doing grunt work. But you I was data entry work. You were probably one of the more important people there because they didn't know how to no. use the machine. <laughs> No, I was not one of the more important people there. I, I could, um, so I could take a file and I could, like, no one knew me. I was, I was on the third floor sitting in, it was, we had an entire floor of the building that was just dedicated um, to files. It's where all the closed case files went. And it's the size, the building is the size of a city block. And I was there closing my cases, <laughs> right? Um, nobody knew me. And even when you started teaching them how to use the computer, that's when they knew. Okay. Me, right. Yeah. That's when they got to know me and my, my brilliant personality, um, sparkled right through. So when did you start thinking you wanted to go to law school? Uh, that would be, I went to law school in 2007. Oh, so you waited a bit. Yeah. So I, I was the technology trainer, guru, then I figured out that, um, that I, I figured out that there was a lot of flaws in the representation um, that could be fixed through better workflow and better technology. So uh, I became a bug up the public defender's butt and just, she put me in their social services unit. So I was going into the jail and I was interviewing um, defendants for possible drug treatment options and life skills, anything that we could use to get them out on bond or get them a lighter sentence. Which was totally not within your area of expertise. No, she hooked me up with a really, so Heidi Hamlin and Dana Tilton, shout out to my mentors. She hooked me up with some like amazing people um, and said, just go learn everything there is to know about this firm. Go learn everything there is to know about the office. I want you to work in every department. I want you to do whatever you want to do. I want you to treat it like your chemistry lab. I want you to figure out a way to make it better. That's amazing. It was, it was an opportunity of 
like people, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. Um, but you were really young too. So for you yeah. to even not be totally terrified, or maybe you were, I don't know. I wasn't terrified at all. I don't think I knew enough to be terrified. That's, that's a big, actually big responsibility. I mean, a lot, it could, somebody else could have thought that was a lot of pressure. She was looking for you to. Yeah, I don't think I realized no. it was any pressure. I was like, I get to go to work and play today. But that's, well, I can now. I, it was awesome. Now I can see, you know, you're, you're knowing more about your background, you know, how you're so good at what you do now, because you've seen so much and from different angles. Yeah, work is play. When when work when work stops feeling like when work stops being exciting and when work stops feeling like discovery and that's when I it starts to get kind of stale uh and that's when I start looking to do something different. And I mean, let's face it, not and not every day in the public defender's office um was a joy. And and that's when I went and found something new to do. That's when I was like, okay, done this. This is awful. Don't want to, don't want to do this anymore. You know, what can I do now? So what when else you can were we do? done with the social services thing, you could go into something different. Yeah. What did you I, do after um, that? I started getting really involved in the community, the community outreach arm of the public defender's office and seeing all the ways that, um, we could impact. So, there's some people that think that you know, with criminal justice that you make an impact through diversion or litigation. And I embraced my, the, my boss, Julie's idea that intervention at the beginning was the best way to go. Like the truly the most effective public defender's office is the one no one ever needs because we've changed the communities. We've, um, broken down barriers. We have better cops. We have better prosecutors. We have better judges. We have more access to lawyers and the best public defender's office is the one that hopefully nobody needs. And so I started, I got really involved and had a whole lot of fun um, working with other agencies to work with kids in schools and just figure out crime prevention initiatives. Um, uh, Sometimes in very touchy situations, like, you know, in Tampa, sometimes, you know, back at, back in the day, um, being a young black kid riding a bicycle without a light on it became an arrestable offense, <laughs> or at least a reason to stop and talk. So yeah. we just, you know, you try and influence the circumstances around it. Yeah. I thought you were going to say a politician's son got in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, they don't come to the PD's yeah. office. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't. And from there, I got to, you know, from there, I got to go to Tallahassee. So I got to be involved in statewide legislation. And, you know, while all this is going on, um, I got my master's degree. I had a baby. Um, and then I went to law school. So you were at the PD's office for many years, floating, kind of. Yeah, all totaled the total span of time was probably 20 years. So when did you start thinking that maybe I want to actually be a lawyer? It was not a decision I thought through well enough. Why do you say that? <laughs> Is there a um, regret there? I, I, yeah, I probably, um, I worshiped at the 
you know Christopher Anderson. Yeah. Um, so this this reference will make sense to you. But there are some people who um, love the jurisprudence of it all, who worship at the altar of the law. Uh, there are some people who went to law school because they wanted to make a bunch of money. They wanted to be a certain type of lawyer. They wanted to help a certain type of people. And then there's people who went to law school because it never hurts to have a law degree. And I'm a pretty good student. Yeah. Um, and I could maybe do something with this one day. And I, I think I, I think I fell into the the latter, um, where I, I really at the PD's office there was nowhere higher for me to go. There, you can't be an elected public defender without being a lawyer, and there was no non-lawyer position higher than, than mine that I could go to. So, and you had pretty much worked your way through all of the positions and all of the... And I knew them all. And I knew I didn't want to go back and do any of them for the rest of my life. Did you think that maybe you wanted to be the public defender? For a minute. For a hot minute. <laughs> for a split second. Um, so you went to... And, and then I realized it's, it's, it's far... It's way more political. But I thought maybe... Um, I thought I thought for sure doing something at the statewide level that I would that I would do something. So it was either that or Vogue. Yeah, it was either that or Vogue. <laughs> well, I never I never gave up on music and photography and art. I just learned. I just I guess decided it wasn't going to be my my vocation. Yeah, it could be my avocation. Yes. But, so you went to law school. Where'd you go? Stetson. Um, Stetson University is in St. Pete, and they had a, a special program where you could go at night. So um, I worked at the PD's office during the day, and then I went to law school at night. And then when you graduated, you became a PD? And then when I graduated, I took the oath um, and yeah, became a PD. I, I, I was never, so I was an assistant public defender. I never worked in an actual division. I didn't have to, to, to shout out to my, my PD family um, who, who I worked with for all those years, who picked up the boxes of files and did file after file, court appearance after court appearance, heavy docket after heavy docket. I, I didn't, I didn't go that route. I stayed very much in the operations side. Um, I stayed really focused on community. I, I did court hearings, absolutely, because I needed to see what it was like. I argued in front of a judge. I worked on a couple of cases as second chair. I helped pick some juries, but I, I was never an assistant public defender in the trenches the way those guys are. How did you swing that? Was it because you still were, was, was the same public defender still there? Yeah, she's still, and she's still the same public defender. She's, wow. she's just got, re, she, she just got reelected essentially because she's running uncontested again. So she's been the public defender now since 1993. That is so crazy. What's her name again? Julie Holt. Oh my God. I can't believe that. So you want to meet, you want to meet her. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I may as well, but that, that is so crazy to me. Like you, you know, there's this expression. I don't want, I maybe I, I can curse. This is my podcast. Like you stepped in shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Um, I stepped, well, I did, right? Like, um, I, I stepped in shit and then figured out a way to bloom where I was planted and just happened. It didn't just happen, right? The universe yeah. has a plan. Yeah. Um, was lucky enough that, I mean, she was young when she got elected public defender. She was in her 30s. Oh, yeah. She was. Right? She was in her 30s. Um, she knew that she knew that the public defender's office in Tampa was corrupt and backwards and that there were so many better ways to do business. Um, and so we happened to find each other. Like my first summer there was her first summer there. <laughs> so it and with me being me and just constantly like bugging her. Um, let me do this. Let me try this. I'll do that. Like anytime there was something that needed to be done, I raised my hand and said, I'll do that. And so I got the opportunity to go do that. Well, there is definitely something to be said about being proactive. I, I recognize with my own staff that when they're, I really like the people that are proactive, you know, that don't just wait for you to tell them what to do. And I would think you can probably have an opportunity to learn more when you do that. Yeah. When everything looks like fun, you know, or I, I just, when, especially because public defender, I think is an elected position. I don't think it's an elected position. Public defender is an elected position. In Florida. It's not, I don't think it's, it's not. In Florida. Right. It's not. Right. Here it's an elected position every four years. And so I think you're surrounded by syncophants and yes people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there, and then let's not forget it's government. So then you're surrounded by a certain amount of no people where their first response is, no, we can't do that. No, they can't be done. That's a great idea. We know you want to do that and you're wonderful, but that can't happen. Or my and I was always the kind of person to go, that can totally happen. Why can't we do that? Or my personal favorite, but this is how we've always done it. Or so my first day as um, my first day as a manager. So I was in charge of the intake unit. This is by now the office does like 60,000 cases a year. They get 60,000 new cases in every year. And so I'm in charge of intake and making sure it can run like an assembly line. And so um, I go into the department on my first day to, you know, say hi to all the data entry clerks and talk about how we're going to start, you know, doing stuff. And one of them, I'll, Lucretia, I love her. Um, it's very Southern lady from plant city says little girl, I've been working here longer than you've been alive. Don't think you're going to tell me how to do my job. Right. And so there's, there was a whole lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think that she, Julie was excited about doing something new and I was excited about having this huge playground that I could go figure out how to make things work better. So did you ever actually have like your own cases, your own files that if they were yours when you were an attorney yes. and you had to work them? Yes. But you had fewer files than the other people. Significantly. Okay. I had, I had four. Okay. <laughs> I had four. I had, um, I had a Rico. I had. That sounds hardcore um, for your, for one of your first ones. I, but they last forever. So there's, <laughs> it's not like I had never seen a courtroom before. It's not like I didn't know how to read a police report. Like as doing what I was doing before, as you know, as a legal assistant to the felony bureau chief, as an assistant to the public defender, as the operations director, 
as the technology, you learn how to break down a file, you learn how to read a police report, you learn how to, you know, identify the witness. Like you learn how to do it all. That getting a bar card doesn't like magically give you any knowledge yeah. about how to do a case that you can't learn otherwise. That's true. That's true. That's why Kim Kardashian can get well, she's not going to get a law degree, but she's that's why she can take the bar. I thought she was getting a law degree. I don't know exactly. I thought she was in law school. Is she actually going to get a law degree from our admitted, I like a, a a legitimate? I don't school? know. I thought she was, yeah. A, a bar accredited school. Oh, I don't know about the accreditation levels, but well, she's going to be able to practice law. I know that. Yeah. Okay. So, sure, sure. I'm glad to be in that sporting. Yeah. So. Hey, you never know. Her celebrity is, is definitely doing something for some people. Yes, it is. Um, okay. So, so then it sounds like you really have been, you were really bred in a business environment. Cause that, that's basically what you were doing. You were like the law firm administrator. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, but to call it a business environment, I think it, it's kind of interesting because most people don't think of government law firms that way, right? Um, and I don't think, but I think she ran it like a business, which I think was very different at the time. Um, and, you know, in Florida, we're solely funded by the state. It's you know, whatever the, whatever the government decides to give you. Um, and we realized quickly that wasn't good enough. And so it was like grants, let's go find grants. We were one of the very first, you know, public defender's office to go seek independent private grants. We were one of just any, any way we could to go generate money, you go generate money and it's, you just, you learn how to do it. And I don't think that all government agencies are run that way. So I got that very unique perspective. Did you, were you ever responsible for personnel? I was responsible for all of the non-lawyer support. And how was that experience? So that was, I directly supervised 40, um, but we had a hundred in total. And so I supervised my team and then I um, put together another team to supervise that team. And I ended up supervising the four non-lawyer support department heads. So how was your experience with being a manager of people? Because that's I different. Was, I was the worst boss ever. <laughs> Why you I was so bad. Um, I, I started off as a project manager and as a data person, as a technology person, and it really took me a very long time to develop um, or tap into the emotional intelligence that people don't respond the way computers respond. Yeah, I think I'm still working on that, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> well, full disclosure, you've been my my coach before, my uh -huh. COO, and yes. you have uh, witnessed these challenges that I have with managing people. It's it's not easy. And and I, I feel that's one of the reasons why I, I do a lot of coaching on leadership and management and, and just the technical aspects of it, because I was so bad at it. 
And I made so many mistakes and I made so many cry, so many people cry unnecessarily. And I hired so many of the wrong people and broke them. They could have been good people, but then I didn't train them right. And then we had to fire them. Now they're living under a bridge. I think we went back and counted and somewhere in my career, um, I had been, I had either hired directly or been on interview panels of something like eight, 1800. And I, I had fired in, in the hundreds. So were you, were you quick to fire people? I, I, I was quick to quit on people, but being, being in a, in an office, like I was at the time, um, it wasn't so easy to fire. So and so I, I was quick to be like, you're fucking worthless. <laughs> you're worthless. Like, no, I'm not training. We're, de- we're demoting you and we're moving you to the file room. We moved our problems around. So do you. So like you- rather than fire them, we would move them to a place where they couldn't touch anything and hurt anybody. Yeah. Until I learned how to do things better. But do you feel like looking back on things, obviously in hindsight, we always have better judgment and can see things that maybe we didn't see before. Do you think that, I mean, how many of the people that you fired, do you think, you know, if you had that now, would you have fired them? Would you have recognized that there were, there was some coaching that they could have I think a lot of them I never a lot of them I never would have hired. Yeah. I I I learned how to find the tribe. You know how we talked about we talk about your avatar client. Yeah. Um I I learned for all of the different roles in the PD's office who the avatar employee was. And I learned how to go get them. And I learned how to interview them and I learned I learned how to nurture them along and I learned how to give them better supervisors. Um, I think a lot of the people who got fired were looking back on 20 years. A lot of them was desperation hires. Yeah. Just need a warm body. Yeah. Um, and we'll work around it. And I, I think that had I known better, a lot of that never would have happened. I think too, having gone through the coaching and run a business for a few years now, you have to recognize when, you have to start to recognize when there's a need to hire someone because you can't like to avoid the desperation thing. You can't wait until, Oh my God, like we need to hire somebody. Right. If you need them today, it's already too late. Yeah. Like there were signs months ago that we needed somebody for that position, whether it's in a position that exists already or not. So, and that's where I was really good. Like, that's where I loved computers and data and, and systems. And because I could look at it and know, like, I know to hand, I know to handle 80 DUI, 80 misdemeanor level cases. I know how many attorneys you need. I know how many secretaries you need. I know, I know that. And so for, it was a, it was a matter of data. So, but you learned that, you, learn the you kind of learned that part through trial and error. Yes. Okay. And well, yes, learned it through trial and error. But one of the last things that I ever did for the PD's office, and it was actually for the statewide association, is um, Florida did the largest ever weighted caseload study. So you know how we talked to you guys about SKUs, (laughs) workflows and and data workflows and cost of goods sold? Um, 
we did that for the public defender system of Florida. So we actually figured out whether it's small town in the panhandle or whether it's Miami, whether it's Jacksonville or whether it's Tampa, how long does it take to do a certain type of case? Was that your brainchild? Um, I, I'll take partial credit for it, sure. I don't mind taking partial credit for that. Um, Carlos Martinez, the public defender in Miami, significant influencer, Nancy Daniels from Tallahassee, Julie in Tampa, um, they really, they really championed it. There, there were some PDs who really wanted to do some stuff to, to make a huge difference. Okay. Because the stuff that I'm just thinking of the stuff that you teach now for the members of how to manage is the first things that they beat into you when you join is that we physically beat them. They do. They do. Mm -hmm. You have to have a business plan included in that as a marketing plan and you know, hiring and firing is important. I mean, you don't have to, well, it's, you're certainly going to be more successful yeah. if you do, just like you you don't have to, you know. But conceivably, you're joining how to manage or any well, whoever you use, whatever coach you use, you're asking for help to run your business more effectively. It's probably because there are problems, right, that you identify. I mean, probably most people don't don't go looking for a coach if things are just going along swimmingly. That's what I always say. No, it's same thing for you, right? Like no one. No one comes to see a divorce lawyer if they're really happy about things. Yeah, they don't. Right? You didn't end up on my roster because everything is is working perfectly for you. So let's talk about yeah, it. Let's talk about it. You know, maybe what has gone wrong is you're just not making as much money as you want to. You, you can't figure out why your firm is, you know, plateauing at a certain level of income. That I mean, that's probably, and we help them figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could be that, you know, the whole thing's imploding at, right before your very eyes and you need some help. So it could be any of that or, you know, anything in between. Yeah. But so the business plan, the marketing plan, um, and I think also having processes, just having documented processes, like standard operating procedure. SOPs, baby. So, yeah, that's I, – I was definitely – they called me the SO princess. I was, I was the SO, like we had, I had documented everything. <laughs> How did you figure that out though? Because there's people that were, are way older than you were when you were doing that, that, you know, haven't got a clue. How did you yeah. learn that you needed to have SOPs in place? So I think I see the world differently than other people. Um, I think in outlines. I, th I, I, some people think in terms of flowcharts. Some, I, I think in outlines, and I, I see the world differently. Um, I see the world as a, as a giant, as a giant system <laughs> that that can be hacked. Essentially, if it's a system, I can hack it. Um, I can figure out a, a better, faster, smarter any Daft Punk song that you want to insert, but I can figure out another way to do it and I can help people do better. I think when I saw, I think it was probably the first time that I saw where it really clicked for me in, in all honesty, where it really clicked for me. Um, the way that you train assistant public defenders and prosecutors is you hand them a stack of files and you say trials on Monday, welcome, welcome aboard. And 
and realizing, you know, thank God this person's starting in misdemeanor court. So, the, you know, no one's going to, to prison for this today, but there's got to be a better way to train people. There's got to be a better way to make attorneys ready to go to court and hold people's lives in their hands. Like I, I never under, I never undervalued our attorneys were walking into court with people's lives in their hand. And there just had to be a better way to train them than to slap them on the ass and say, go get them tiger. There just had to be a better <laughs> way to do it. So how did you do it? Mentoring? I, I, I got, I got with really smart. I wasn't an attorney at the time. And so I got with really smart attorneys and said, what do you do with a DUI case? How do you know what to do with a DUI case? And they started talking and I started writing. So this was when you, for yourself, when you were learning how to be a lawyer. No, this was, no, this was, I was 23 Oh, you were putting years old. together. Yeah. For these I, new attorneys. Yeah. Cause I saw it happening and I was like, dude, this is, it's fucked up. Like they're my age. They just got out of law school. They don't even know how to go to, they, they can't even find the courtroom. They literally, the only time they've ever been in a courtroom was to get sworn in. And we're sending them in there with a file and saying, go put on a constitutionally sound defense. And I, it, it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't resonate. What really strikes me about that is you were 23 and just basically getting to know your way around and there have been attorneys there working there for years, practicing law for years. How come they couldn't figure that out? Because I, I think lawyers are a particular brand of sadist, masochist, narcissist. I don't know what it is. I think you guys figure, um, I think they figured, I'll, I'll talk specifically about my people so as to not offend the world at large, but... I think that the criminal defense bar, particularly the public defender culture, particularly the PD culture is very much like you are forged in fire and, and, and you can't learn it from a, from a checklist. You're, you've got to feel your way through it. A litigator is a litigator. There's litigating lawyers and there's settling lawyers. And, you know, we're, we're litigators and we're fighters and we're forged in fire. And so I think that I think that part of their ego was tied to is tied to the fact that they learned that way. Yeah. And so you should have to learn that way. Yeah, that there isn't any way to standardize it. And that lo and behold, there is. Which actually there is, because I always tell my clients, there is. I always tell my clients that, you know, your divorce is not gonna, it's not unique. You know, it's a unique to you and your personal circumstances, but the legal issues in your case, they're not new. We've right. done them a million times. There's really only a few solutions for each one. And that's right. it. So yeah, this, I understand and, this now. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and process is process is process. Like I'm like, and, and I do that now every day. So I can honestly say, I know how to, you know, I know what I know. I can make a process on how to do a homicide case. I can make a process on how to do a divorce with kids. I can make a process on how to do a personal injury with minor injuries and a motor vehicle accident where you got run over by a semi truck. It can all be 
documented and you can take the best knowledge of the, of the best minds and you can reduce it to writing so that it, it becomes accessible to other people and so that the best standards of justice are available to everybody. Yeah. Um, that, like, that was always, that was always very important to me. Why should, why should I get a better defense if I'm in Tampa or St. Pete? Why should I get a better defense if I got assigned to attorney A instead of attorney B? Why is it more likely that I'll go to jail if I'm in front of this judge or the other judge? Um, that, that always just sort of fascinated me. And that's what made me get in and really start figuring it out. And then when they, when they keep cutting budgets and you have to do more with less, you can't go to somebody and say, Hey attorney, I know you've got 110 pending felony cases. We're reducing our felony staff. Um, so now you're going to have 120, right? So we had to learn how to reduce support staff. So we had to learn how to automate things and make things happen. I called it automagically. We had to learn how to make, make computers do the work and, and make technology do the work and make automations do the work so that we could put our, our, our resources towards lawyers who could go to courtrooms and help our clients. I love that automagically. Automagically. That's how I want my life to run is automagically. Automagically. So I want to go back to the people stuff. Yay, my second favorite thing to talk about. I want to go. <laughs> so, yeah, because I feel like that I'm interested in that because I feel like that is definitely something I struggle with. I think you actually said to me one time, Christina, you should never talk to anybody at your law firm. <laughs> I think I said, I, th I think I said, Christina, as long as you're feeling like that, you should probably not talk to anybody in your law firm. Well, I remember I was very happy you said that because I went. I, I remember you heard exactly what you wanted to hear. Yeah. I said to John, my business partner, for anyone who doesn't know, I said, John, Nicole said that I should not talk to anyone because I would have been perfectly happy to just not do any people management and just go in my office and shut the door. And I have to tell you this whole COVID thing, I come into the office, there's nobody here. And I love it because I don't have to talk to anybody. I just come in, sit at my desk. There's nobody asking me any questions. I don't have to talk about their day. Yeah, and it, it's great. It's, it's, it's great. As long as you never want to grow or do anything, you can totally be like that. You're such a buzzkill, Nicole. Well, look, I'm, I'm exaggerating. I mean, I, I, I like to talk to my staff on a limited basis. <laughs> I, I can't, I don't know. Like, I just can't deal with having to talk to people in a certain way. <laughs> I feel like there's no, nice way, there's no way for this to come out and not sound totally douchey. Have you met me? You don't have to talk to people in it. You don't have to talk to people in a certain way. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that you can talk to people. What's important is that you're is that you're being authentic. And what's important is that the same Christina that hires them is the same Christina that talks about them is the same Christina. And if you can't bring yourself to to care about them, then you're not hiring the right people or you need to not be a boss. Like it's a conscious decision to be a boss. It's a conscious decision 
to be a lawyer. You could, you don't have to be around people and be their boss if you don't want to be around them. But then well, how, do have, how do you have a law firm though? Let's say I was solo. I mean, how would I have a law firm? I know what you're going to say. Hire someone to do that. I don't think you can hire somebody to lead. Yeah. I, I think you got to, I think you got to be the leader. It's got to be your vision. Can you hire somebody to take over the day-to-day -day management of the processes and the milestones and making sure the projects happen and making sure the trains run on time and making sure that balls don't get dropped? Yeah. Um, that includes managing people. At some level, absolutely. Like until the, the number of people who you become the direct manager for decreases proportionately as your office grows, right? So when it's just you and somebody, it's all on you. You've got to manage that person. You've got to train that person. You've got to teach that person. You've got to coach that person. You know, when you start adding people to it, that's when you get to add in layers of buffer. But I, that's why I still think it's really important, though, that you're hiring people you can give a shit about. That's why I think it's important that you're hiring people who are your tribe so that it doesn't feel like, ugh, I have to go talk to this person. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. I'm, I got to think about that because there's definitely people that I've had working for me that I hated talking to them because I always felt like it was just going to be an ordeal. Like they're going to give me eye rolls and they're going to, you know, they're, they're not going to just be like pleasant and just say, okay, you know, I got that or, you know, I'll have legitimate questions. But, and there are certain people that are coming to mind that I'm not going to say. I names. think that's who you hire. I think that's yeah. so. I I saw it as I see hiring the way the way I began to see hiring is I have to put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to cultivate the group that I have, and it's my job to protect this group from the batshit crazy people who, who are going to try and infiltrate it. <laughs> and so I, I had a very specific idea of who I needed in every position. And I had a very personality wise, right? Not skills wise. I can, I can teach anybody almost anything if they're willing to learn it, but personality wise, and it's not to get along with me. It's the personality of who they need to get along with their coworkers. Who's the rest of the team that's been cultivated? Um, and then sometimes we would hire somebody just to shake things up. Sometimes you hire, but, but I'm very intentional about the attitude that I'm hiring for. So how do you do that? So many ways. Um, part of it's you execute the systems. Well, you have the systems. So part of it's you execute them and you approach them differently. So I used to say sitting down for an interview with me was um, like sitting down for a deposition of the state's key witness. <laughs> the interview is not where I am not trying to find friends. Right. I, I the interview for me is where's the exaggeration? Where's the lie? Who is this person really knowing that the day they show up on their interview it's the best version of that person you're ever going to get. So what would you do? Just like interrogate them about their resume to see what, where the holes were. That was, that was half of it. Half of it. Um, 
and the way we interviewed attorneys is very different from the way we interviewed support staff, right? So this is not a one size fits all. The way we interviewed investigators was very different um, based on the role they were going to have. So, you know, interviewing support staff, it was me and three other support, you know, the, the three other department heads, and maybe I would bring in an HR, um, the HR director was usually there. And sometimes I would bring in the IT director. And that's a different conversation. That's, that's to find out how supportive they really are. Um, that's to find out, but to sit down with attorneys, they, they walked into a full panel of seven. Wow. And we threw multiple questions at them at a time because we're interviewing for people who can go to court and think on their feet. We're interviewing for people who can say, I don't know in a way that doesn't sound like, I don't know who could say respectfully, your honor, without having it sound like F you, your honor, who can, who can, you know, think on their feet and handle the rapid pace of a courtroom. And so we, everybody had the questions that they asked and we fired them off to see if you could remember who asked what question. Do you have any questions that you feel like are absolutely questions you have to ask every single time? Is there even one? Um, back the way, let's see, back the way it used to be. No. Um, I think now I ask, I got to the point where I was asking pretty, we asked pretty much the same questions every time. Certainly now when I interview, I definitely ask the same questions every time. I, I, and now when I interview and when I help you guys interview, I'm, I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for people who are comfortable with growth and change. I'm, I'm looking for people who, and you should be looking for people who don't just say they're comfortable with change, change, but who can show you that they thrive with those opportunities. Um, so how would you test them on that? Give me an example of a time when you, we ask behavioral questions, right? And so it's, I ask it twice. I ask it once when we're going through their resume, you know, and then, and then I ask it again, like, tell me your biggest success ever when you were handed a situation where you didn't know what to do and you had to figure out what to do. Tell me about your most successful experience with that. Tell me about your biggest mistake you ever made with that. Tell me about the, the time that you were handed a situation that you didn't know what to do and you did it completely wrong. Tell me what you learned from that situation. I ask, I ask that question all the time. And how, what is there like a right or wrong answer? What if they're like, oh, I can't think of anything. That's the wrong <laughs> answer. <laughs> that's never happened ever. <laughs> that's when I, but, but that's where I like interviews aren't polite. I'm not sitting there to chit chat with you, right? That's when I say, you've never made a mistake. You've never not known what to do and then done the wrong thing. What's that like? Yeah. <laughs> What's that like to always know the right thing to do in every situation? And thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> uh, sometimes you just have to make it okay for them. People are always prepared to come in and tell you about their strengths, their three greatest strengths. And they're three greatest weaknesses because everyone asks those questions. And so I make sure I never ask those questions. <laughs> yeah, and I love when the weaknesses are, I'm too patient. I care too much. Yeah. Yeah. I care too much. I have a hard time saying no. Right. And I'm like, oh, so really you have no boundaries and you're a huge victim. That's what that means. Will you actually ask them that? No. Okay. I'll say it. I'll write it in the notes. And then, but I will dig into it. 
I'll say you have a hard time saying no. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Because I'm nice. Do you realize that every time, you know, everything you say yes to, you're actually saying no to something else? So what are the, <laughs> like, I, I, I start asking all those questions. What, how are you, you know, why do you do that? I ask a lot of whys, a lot of whys. What's, what's behind that? Why do you think that is? Why do you think you behave that way? And then, where did you learn that behavior? And then potentially you scare off the weaklings that can't handle that. The weaklings typically, if your pre-interview stuff is set up right, the weaklings typically don't make it to you. Yes. Yes. And these are all things that you can learn at how to manage a small offer. <laughs> Should I? <laughs> yes. These are all things you can learn at how to manage a small offer. You can learn them by reading the book, Who? The A Method for oh, Hiring. Okay. I love, I always love book recommendations. I'm writing this down as though you've never told me before. <laughs> right. There's, there's who the A method method for hiring. Um, there's, I, where's the one that the one they followed it up with, which used to be right next to me. If you guys could see me, you would see me looking on my bookshelf that I can't find it. Um, but top grading, it's more about interviewing. Um, Radical candor. I subscribe to that not only as a management style, but as a way of living. <laughs> What's an example of radical candor? Loving someone enough to be honest. Because I've been accused of making people cry. Well, I have made people cry. Not on purpose, but... Well, I mean, that presumes that someone crying is a bad thing. Yeah, I guess so. I guess the way it's always been expressed to me is that it was a bad thing like that I made someone well, cry. Well, no, you said something that triggered in them an emotional reaction, which triggered a physiological reaction of crying. And then my response would always be, not to the person, but, you know, to other people. I would say, well, why does it have to be that I did something wrong? Maybe they're just being sensitive. Like, you're at work. There's no crying here. <laughs> Well, I mean, they're having a physiological response, right? And it's a, it's a learned response. Some people cry because they've learned that when they cry, people stop asking them yeah. questions. They've learned that when they cry, other people get apologetic. Um, a very, very smart woman of mine, a friend of mine who I count as a mentor, said, why do you, crying doesn't always necessarily equal pain, but if it did, why is that a bad thing? Sometimes people have to feel the pain. If they don't feel the pain, they don't make the change. So sometimes people cry to manipulate you. Sometimes people cry because they have an emotional reaction. I sometimes sometimes you said a shitty thing and it hurts somebody's feelings. Well, that's I think that's the thing that I always that why it always bothered me is because I'd sit and I'd reflect on the conversation and I would think, but I didn't, it wasn't like I screamed at them. I wasn't mean to them. You know, I didn't say like, I didn't say something that you would think would be offensive. So I would kind of internalize it. Like I did something wrong because I made them cry. And I would somehow feel like I was responsible for that. But at the same time, would feel like, but I don't really know what I did wrong. You know, how can I control how they respond? 
And you might not have done anything wrong. They might have been a crier. <laughs> well, looking back on the people that. But, uh, but if you look back on it and you're like, I could have handled this better. I think that's a different situation. Yeah, I think maybe there were times that I, maybe I could have been a little more delicate in the way that I spoke about things, but. Well, I won't say delicate because I don't think, I don't think delicacy, I don't think people are, I don't think it's up to you to not break people. Yeah. Um, but I think that you could probably say things with more love. Like that's, I come from a place of, if you're on my team, uh, I am I am coming at you with, with love. Like, and I'll even say with all the love in my heart, because it's, it's totally my job. The moment that I say, I'm gonna be a boss, I am responsible to provide that person with, not responsible for that person, but I am responsible to that person. And I'm responsible to train them and to give them feedback and to give them tools and to give them equipment. And if I don't want to be responsible to anybody, then I don't have to be anybody's boss. But the moment that I bring them on the team, I'm responsible to make it up, make it possible for them to be successful. I'm responsible to give them the opportunities. And so when I sit down and have a conversation with somebody about don't do that again, if I've put the time in, in the relationship. Yeah. By the time we get to the mistake, we have a relationship where I can look at you and go, Christina, don't do that again. And you go, okay. If I've hired you and then I haven't spoken to you in three and a half weeks and I've had you deal with an administrator and then I walk by you and I go, Hey, don't do that again. You're like, Oh, it's, it's weird. Cause you have no relationship. Yeah, I get right? that. I understand that. Like I can, I, I've spent enough time with you. I can pro I can say all, I have said some really, really hard stuff to you. <laughs> um, well, I don't remember ever crying or being upset. Yeah. I've said some really tough stuff and you and you and John can say pretty much anything to me about me about my delivery, about what I said, about how something was wrong, about how you don't agree. And we have a, we have a good foundation. And that's, that's what radical candor is, is founded in, is the fact that, you know, you love somebody enough to not let them, to not watch them fail. And I think what, how does it relate to personal relationships too? Is it kind of like, it's an absolute way of life. Like, yeah. Because even in your personal relationships, I feel like if you don't say what you want or what you need, you're not going to get it. Or you really can't get angry if right. you're not or getting it. Or if you it. see somebody, if you see a, a best friend make the same mistake over and over and date the wrong type of guy over and over and or act like a martyr over and over and they ask you, what am I doing wrong? And you say, I don't know but you do know, then you're well, just, then you're just freaking lying to them. <laughs> okay. Cause I, I do have a situation like that in my life, but what if they don't ask? What if they just complain about the same thing over and over and you're just like, <laughs> how does she not see the solution? I, mean, I, I, I approach it the same way with all the love in my heart. Can we have a conversation? Like this is, this is weird. You haven't asked for my advice. And if you don't want my advice or if you don't want my observations, I won't give them to you. But if you're going to come to, if you're, you're coming to me complaining, 
about not liking the results that you're seeing, I think we could have a conversation about some of the some of what I'm seeing is happening that you might find illuminating. If you're not interested, I won't share it. So then do you are, are you the kind of person who will just listen? Are you the kind of person who can do that? Yes. If that's so if they say I need to talk to you, do you need me to just listen? Will you, you ask them that? Or people <laughs> my friends learn very quickly to not say hey be honest with me unless they actually want me to be honest with them. My very best friend says I need you to lie to me for a second. <laughs> That's how the conversation starts off. Nicole, I need you to lie to me for a second. I'm like, okay, everything's going to be okay. You're perfect and wonderful. And, <laughs> and then she's like, okay, now we actually have to talk about what I'm doing with my life. And I say, okay, now we can talk about what you're actually doing with your life. Well, I think that's the difference because she's, she knows that you will be honest. She knows you love her. And she's asking. And I'm not and I'm not always and I'm not preachy about it. I'm I'm not coming when I'm honest, I'm honest about my opinion. I'm not honest about like I'm gonna I'm gonna give you advice and tell you what to do because I know better than you. Because I don't. I don't know her life better than she knows her life. I've known her my entire I feels like my entire life now. She's the only person who's liked me consistently for the past 35 years. But I don't know her better than she knows her. So all I can do are share my observations. All I can do are, this is how I see you react. This is how I see you behave. This is what I see you do. This is the pattern that I see. Does any of that resonate with you? And sometimes she says no, and sometimes she says yes. It's not up to me to tell her, you should do this. That's not, that's not radical candor. Radical candor is not, do what I say to do. You're an idiot. It's, here's the pattern that I see. Do you see this too? Yeah. I see the difference there. And I guess that's something you do with your employees too. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. It is. Yeah. I see that. And the same thing I do with my, my, my coaching, my business clients. And I did it as a lawyer. Right. Don't you think though, that it's easier to see other people's problems or issues or patterns, whatever, <laughs> than your own. Yes. So how do you, who do you go to to tell you what the hell you're doing wrong? It's, it's so easy to like, I think you've heard Arjun say this from stage. I've said it. Kristen said it. Erica said it. It's so easy to read the instructions on the outside of the box when you're standing outside of the box. It's really hard to read the instructions on the, on when you're in the box, right? Yeah. You have to get up and get out of the box. I don't think I've heard that before or I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, it's, it's really easy. And, and so that's how people get really judgy. Like, ugh, like, I can't believe they're asking the same question. This question's been answered like 18 times. And it's like, no, their question is very different to them because they're in, they're in it. Yeah. We're not yet, we're not yet transcendent to where we can be both in it and above it at the same time. Well, isn't it that's what we're for. Isn't it interesting though, when you hear somebody talking about, another person mm -hmm. and they're describing the very same thing that they do <laughs> and you're just mm -hmm. like what <laughs> you're, you're uh -huh. thinking in your head what and then and then your next conclusion is they don't know <laughs> they don't have any idea or they know 
or they know, but they think for some reason that when they do it, it's endearing. Yeah. It's and when this other person does it, it's annoying. They, we, humans are strange creatures, um, but very predictable, <laughs> very consistent in our inconsistencies and very, once you, once you start to see it, you realize it's a pattern. You know, that's why, that's why for some people we, it's so, it's so, it's so easy to spot. Um, and then for other people, it's like, really, you don't, you don't see the pattern there. You don't, you keep touching that hot stove and then wondering why your fingers burnt and then touching that stove and then wondering why your fingers, but you don't see. Okay. All right. Well, can I give you some feedback? Maybe don't touch the stove. Maybe don't do that. People don't see it. Yeah, it's true. It's it's incredible. When I think you become more aware of that too when you start coaching and you see someone coaching someone else and you see all that stuff happen and then you experience it yourself. I think that's when you really, at least for me, that was my experience. I really opened up to letting somebody give me some constructive feedback. So who does it for you? I happen to be surrounded by by 35 of the best coaches um, and uh, in the business. Um, so certainly I'm, I have an amazing safety net around me and I have an amazing group of people I can go to. Um, I don't know if you've met our John Robbins, but he really doesn't hesitate to call people out on his on bullshit when he sees it happening. He does not. Especially if, he thinks you have some sort of potential that there is to stand up for. <laughs> does he do the laser coaching with you guys, with the coaches, the way that he does to the members? I don't know. Uh, yes. I could say, I could say yes. I mean, when I came to how to manage, um, so I had been a member first and I went to a mastermind. So I had that experience. Um, and then he, is the one who taught my how to manage university. Um, I had Arjon and Erica Forenzi do my how to manage onboarding. Double, double, double whammy for sure. Um, and then we still do the monthly mindset calls. We do after all QMs, we do all day team trainings and absolutely we still get uh, laser coaching. Erica Forenzi, I talk to every day. If she, and you can you can bet that if she sees something going on, she's going to call it out. Well, I interviewed Arjun for a Facebook Live interview. I don't know if you saw it. It was two hours. I think it was. I did. It was over two hours. And I didn't watch the whole thing, but I I even like clicked on and did like the little thumbprint to say hey, how you doing? Thank you. It was a good one. And I also interviewed Erica. I guess I'm just making my rounds, making my way around. You are. You are. Uh, and you're, which was kind of accidental, but. You're obviously like, now, fuck, who do I talk to? I guess I could talk to Nicole. No, stop it. <laughs> and I did interview Erica. That was really good. Um, that was for an hour. So, and, you know, I don't want to take up all your time. So whenever you get bored with me, just. <laughs> Okay. Um, but I do want to like connect the dots. So you were at PD's office and then 
you said you so did you go straight from pd's office to how to manage as a coach no i went um from the pd's office to jamie um jamie marcario used to be a member of how to manage and i don't know you might want to edit this part out i don't know that i have her permission i don't know but um so we went to law school together so when i left the pd's office um i i had gone to law school with jamie who um had done her since law school had done her tour at uh big law and mid-sized law and was ready to launch her own business and really wanted to do something for creatives I knew from my community involvement, I knew how to do business organizations and partnerships. And, I, and so, you know, um, went to work with her and she joined how to manage. Were you partners or you were an employee? At the time, I was an independent contractor helping her business get set up. And there was going, I was, we were going to be partners. Okay, but you weren't, and that's so why you had to leave the PD's office. Yeah, I gave the PD's office three months notice. Okay. Um, and then I, I worked, I, I, I was an independent contractor for um, Uncommon Legal, and I was working for the PD's office as to wind down my position and replace me. Um, and so she said, I'm going, I met this, I met this guy, Chris Anderson at a CLE event. He's all talking about how to manage a small law firm. It's exactly what we've been looking for. Um, they give you the template. You just have to do it. Uh, and her husband was like, would you go with her and talk her out of this, please? Like, <laughs> like it's Trump university for lawyers, please go talk her out of this. Um, and we went and we met Kristen David. And I was like, if you don't sign that paper, I'm going to like, I'll start a law firm and sign that paper. If so her husband's plan really backfired. Totally backfired. <laughs> did, you mad at you or did it all work out? It all worked out. It all works out. Right. It always works out. Yes. Um, and so then I had the very strong I had the very strong cult of public defender to overcome doctrine of sacrifice, doctrine of scarcity. Um, everyone's a victim. Like I had some serious mindset shit to overcome to, to put myself where I could be a, a successful business owner. So we, um, I went to a mastermind, met Arjun. He, he asked, I think I was the second one to go. Um, he asked, why are you a lawyer? And I just started crying because I didn't want to be a lawyer. It's not what I wanted to do. I love supporting lawyers. I love helping lawyers. I love helping lawyers help more people. I don't like the practice of law. Well, were you, you were practicing at that point in time? I was, I, I had left the P so I had, I had been practicing at the PD's office, like finished up a death penalty plea. <laughs> I, I had been handling, um, reviewing cases and prepping cases, uh, juvenile life without parole had just been declared unconstitutional and all the cases were coming back to resentencing. And I was reading files and working files up for other people to take them to court. Like, and with Jamie, I was writing contracts. I was doing bylaws. I was help. She wrote the appellate brief. I could take zero credit 
for the work that she did on the appellate brief, but, but it was shake and bake and I helped. Um, so, and I just didn't like it. It's not what, it's not what I was excited about doing. But you, you were excited about doing more of the business admin stuff, right? And I was excited about building a business. <laughs> But you had been doing that, and, and just tell me where I'm getting some of the facts fuzzy. You were at the PD's office, and you were doing a lot of that, and you were doing a little bit of the practice. And I was really happy, and I was and I was happy. So what what changed? Um, I don't know if you know that assist that that people working at public defenders' offices. Um, so the elected official salary is capped by by budget. Um, the elected public defender, an elected public defender in Florida can make $154,000, 154999 a year. And no one that works for them can make a penny more. And I was, didn't want to become a full-time lawyer. So I didn't want to handle homicide cases. Like I didn't want to do the things. And so I was making significantly less than that and knew that there was no way for me to, I had two options to go make more money. I could be a, not be the administrative counsel, not be the operations director and start taking homicide cases. And I could make more money that way. I didn't want to do that. Um, or I could go into the private sector. And so I chose that option and I could, and, and I could go to the private sector with, with my best friend at the time. Okay. I understand. And, and launch a little business together. And that just seemed really exciting. Okay, so that's when you found yourself practicing law. Yeah. Okay. How long did you do that before you were crying to Arjun? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't long. It wasn't long. And then I and then I um, left Uncommon Legal and actually launched my own business, which is the one that that has that you've seen. Um, radical administration. Okay, radical administration. Kind of like radical candor. Kind of like it. You'll notice the color scheme is also pretty similar. And I have to say, to your credit, and I can edit this out if you don't want it in here, but there was a time when I, I forget what happened. I think we wanted to, we either wanted to leave how to manage or we wanted to get rid of a CEO. Right. You were yeah, and I stalked you on the internet and found <laughs> your company and I messaged you and I said, yeah. I want you to coach us. I want you to be our CEO. And you, you did the right thing. You, you just said, no, nope, can't do that. Well, and not only that, but radical administration is admitted. It's not a coaching business. It is at the time it existed, not a coaching business. I was there to parachute in, basically do a site visit, diagnose your firm, look at what's working well, what's working not, what technology you have, what technology you need, what staff you have, what staff you need, find someone to hire my replacement and then leave. Why doesn't Arjun do something like that? You know how many people would do that? There are so many, he probably, he might even have that idea. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many ideas that die on the vine, right? Because they could make $18 or $18 million, but it would take 12 months to get it done. And I just don't have, I, we just got to get other shit done right now. And so 
you prioritize you prioritize it. I, I don't know if he has that idea or not. I mean, I sort of think we do that with site visits a little bit. I sort of think that we do that with with quarterly mastermind groups. I think that's a lot of what some of the add-on services do. But I feel like what's difficult is that you guys always teach us, you know, hire whatever you're going to delegate, hire people for those roles and hire people that are qualified in that position. Like if it's marketing, you hire a marketing person, you hire somebody who knows way more about it than you do. And I think sometimes the mistake we've made in the past, which we're not doing anymore, but we would hire somebody just because we liked them and then think, oh, we can teach them how to do it. But then we would realize, well, how the hell are we going to teach them how to do it? We don't know how to Because we don't even know how to do it. You know, I know yeah. a little, a couple things here and there, but not enough that anybody would pay me to do it full time. So I think what's frustrating sometimes is we get the coaching and we get great information, but we still have the problem that we're still doing certain things. And we finally hired a marketing assistant, but... <laughs> I know, right? You're laughing because you told me the view was probably like because I wrote the job description for it <laughs> two years ago. So I think that's the struggle. So if you can, good for you. Thank you. If you can provide any insight or tips to people listening, please do. There's two kinds of there's two kinds of hires. You're either hiring someone to help you do something or you're hiring someone to replace you in that role. So you're either hiring helpers or replacers. Um, if you're hiring someone to replace you, then you have to vet them on the skills. You have to look at their work product. You have to, um, certainly you're with how to manage. You should, you should get your CEO to weigh in on their resume. You should get their, your CEO to weigh in on their work product. You should get the CEO or the COO to weigh in on um, how well they answered interview questions. If you're a solo and you're not with how to manage, hire how to manage, but if you're a solo and you're not with how to manage, pull in someone who you do trust, pull in a trusted advisor, have them sit in the interview, have them be an independent third party to help you verify. Once you verify skill and ability and you vet them, then it's a matter of attitude and personality and culture fit, right? And then if I'm, if I'm bringing on a marketing director, if I'm bringing on an, op an operations manager, you, Christina, don't have to teach that person how to do payroll because they've done payroll. You don't have to teach, if you don't have to teach your marketing assistant how to do a face, how to do a social media marketing calendar because they've done a social media marketing calendar. You, you make sure that they can do those things. I think attorneys are really comfortable hiring five L's, right? You guys hire attorneys with zero experience so that you can, so that you can train them up. You are very comfortable being a lawyer. So you know how to train lawyers, but you know, when you hire a bookkeeper, you don't think it's your responsibility to train the bookkeeper on how to use QuickBooks. You hire a bookkeeper who knows how to use QuickBooks. So when you hire a marketing assistant, 
right? So you hire somebody who's been there, done that. You hire somebody who's had that job and who has that experience, who, who's better than you and who can replace you. Then you don't have to train them on how to do their job. Then you hold them accountable for meeting their goals. You hold them accountable for production. You hold them accountable for results, but you're not having to train them on how to do their job. You're onboarding them to your culture. You're onboarding them to your team, but you're not giving them training on how to work the HubSpot because they know how to use a CRM. Well, I see the difference now. When I first started really running a business, I don't think that I saw really saw that distinction. And I would hire the person like, oh, I really like her. You know, I could see her. I would do the culture fit first. Yeah. And then, you know, barely find out if they really have the skill. Right. I mean, I still think it's skills first, right? It's aptitude and then attitude. But aptitude is easily tested for, easily screened, easily vetted. And then once you get through the vetting process, then it's all about culture fit. And it's not even do I like you. Because I've hired people who I don't like, but I know we need that particular, that particular culture injection into the office or the, the unit they're going to work in, they're going to be what that, what that unit needs at the time. And it doesn't matter that I'd want to have a go, go have a beer with them or not, but it matters that I respect them and that they were there for the right reasons at the right time, blah, blah, blah. So what are, are there like maybe a top three things, or maybe there's only one that you see like over and over and over again, especially when you get new clients, like just certain weaknesses or, you know, things that are sort of in the way that that's like a self-sabotage because it's like a divorce, right? I see the same issues over and over again. We could tell you what they are. Is it kind of like that for your coaching? Yeah. So among business owners, not just lawyers, um, there is a fear of seeming impolite. There's a fear. And for, for lawyers, bless you guys, you go into an adversarial profession, but you're afraid of being confrontational. Like by and large, there's during the interview and vetting and onboarding and management relationship, there's a fear of, of confrontation and conflict. So I, that's the number one thing I see. With staff? With anybody. Uh, like people are afraid to call out bullshit interview answers. Like you wouldn't be afraid in the middle of a deposition to say, what did you just say? Can you repeat that? What does that mean when you say that? What does that mean to you? But in an interview, we want to be super polite for some reason. And that's weird because by and large, work is not a polite place unless that's your culture and then that's fine. Um, but you guys, you have to get real. You know, it reminds me of the real world when people stop getting polite and start getting real, right? And that's, I kind of want to fast forward through the polite phase and just be real with people. Um, and so I think that that's something that I see across all industries. Among lawyers, and I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but with all the love in my heart, lawyers seem to underestimate the skills that it takes to be a good assistant, to be an office manager, 
to act to to be what what I call a, a real operations director, a real legal administrator. You think it's easy and that everybody can do it. Yeah, that's probably true. There's this perception that it's not the practice of law, so how hard could it be? Yeah, I think you're right. I I see it. That's that's the thing I see with lawyers over not every lawyer, not all the time but enough so that it stands out as a pattern. If they're a support staff person, if they're a good receptionist, then they must be able to be a good office manager. If they're a good paralegal, then they're gonna be an amazing legal administrator. And it's like, why do you think that? They are two completely different sets. They're a good paralegal, so they must be a good bookkeeper. I'll have them do my taxes. And then the lawyer goes, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, exactly. It's the same. Like, just because she's a really good probate paralegal, you don't want her doing your taxes. So if she's a really good family law paralegal, why do you think she can be a legal administrator? Why do you think that he can be the second in command for your office just because he's a really good customer service representative or salesman? Yeah, sales. I see a lot of people do that. But my receptionist is so great with people that I'm going to make her my salesperson. And, and all you've done now is just like burn a really great receptionist. Yeah, and they yeah. don't want to sell. So, right. Yeah. So I think that's the mistake I see is, is assuming that skills are fungible. Like there's there's numbers, there's the practice of law, and then there's all the support staff management stuff. So that we just call everybody an admin. And then they're all fungible. And so I think that's the, I think that I see happen a lot over and over and over again. And it's just from a non-understanding perspective. I think that's absolutely true. Again, something else I'm mindful of because of my experience of how to manage. So what's next for you? Are you a lifer at how to manage? I guess we can't really talk about that. <laughs> um, well, I tend to be, if you look at my employment history, um, I tend to be fairly monogamous. And what I, rather than job hop, like, because I think you see, I was at the PD's office for 20 years. You're like, oh my God. But then you hear I did, thir you know, 30 jobs in that 20 year. So I tend to get with an organization I believe in with values that, I resonate with and that I can embrace and continue to find ways to add value and have fun. So how long have you been at how to manage? Three years. Feels like it's been so much longer. You know what? That does make sense because I have been in how to manage for three years. And I think when you became our CEO, you were new. I was, you were some of my first members. Yep. Right. But you I got you right out of crash course. You did. So you, we, you moved up the ranks quickly, though, because has your role changed somewhat? Since I started? Yeah. But it's easy to move up ranks when there's four people. <laughs> right? Like, let's. Well, you could get fired. When I came to How to Manage, I think there were seven coaches total. How many are there now? 30. 23. Wow. wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it, there weren't even ranks to move into. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, so I, I, I was, a, now I'm the lead COO. 
so I, I have, we now have as many COOs as there were coaches when I came to how to manage. We have eight COOs now. Wow. So if that tells you, like, well, that's the growth. How many members did how to manage have when you joined? I don't know. Cause I know it's got about 400 now. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So what do you have any opinion about what are some of the really top areas of focus? And I know I'm asking you to summarize something that's, that's more probably more complicated, but if you want to grow your firm, what's cause our John grew pretty fast. Yeah. What, are, what like, what's the key to that? See opportunities where other people see problems. Know that you, you chose a vocation where you make money by helping people. And so find a way to help more people. That's how I summarize it. Find opportunities where other people see problems. Find ways to help more people. Really help them. Like not just like ease them along, but provide true value to people, pro provide people with true value. I keep trying to say it without sounding like a hardware store commercial, but um, real value, you know? Yeah. And then, but how do you balance that with how much to charge? Because so many people have oh, a month. I know. How many hours do you have, Christina? I have another two hours. <laughs> um, I don't know, like whatever little nuggets you want to give me, please do. Yeah, I feel like any flip answer that I would give to that would just sound like a bumper sticker. Other than I can tell you, when it comes to charging value, when, when it comes to charging people, it's not about you, it's about them. And no one will pay anything for something they don't want. Yes, yes, that's true. Even if they need it, but they don't right. want it. If they, they need it and don't it. want it, they still won't buy it. It's true. And it has nothing to do with their investment in you and how much they're willing to spend has nothing to do with how much they value you. It has everything to do with how much they value themselves and their future. So they can believe you're the best lawyer in the world, but they have no future. And if they have no future, why would I pay anybody to get me there faster? So it doesn't even matter how much it is. So if I say, hey, I've got a really great deal on a divorce, Far left. <laughs> right god um, open up my trench coat <laughs> right but the, i think your point is that if i even if i do that and i feel like if i think a divorce is worth fifteen thousand dollars let's say i think that's fair so when but i say to someone listen i'm going to charge you five thousand that's it if right. they don't want it it then doesn't they, matter right right so I look at Starbucks, right? It, in the seventies, when it got started, I'll, let's just take it to the nineties. Who's going to pay $7 for a cup of coffee? I'm, it's still crazy, but I still and, buy. <laughs> and who's, and who's going to drink coffee in the middle of the day? How are you going to make any money? And it's like, aren't you afraid you're going to price yourself out of your market? Aren't you afraid? No, we're just, it, they, they found their people. They found their tribe. They found a service, a good that people wanted, and they found a way to sell it. 
and they didn't compromise on the price because they knew what it needed to cost in order to provide what they wanted to provide, which was more than a cup of coffee. Yeah. And, and so I, I look at Starbucks as an example of you could go anywhere and get coffee. But you're not going to have the Starbucks experience anywhere except Starbucks. And there's some dishes, that, there's some coffee that you can't get anywhere but Starbucks. Like I can't get a good skinny mocha frappuccino literally anywhere else. I've tried. No one else makes them. <laughs> no one else makes a good one. You definitely don't have the same experience at Dunkin' Donuts either. Uh-uh. Even the, the coffee's cheaper. And the, the plain coffee, I think, is better. Like, I don't even really like Starbucks coffee. I like their fancy drinks. I don't even actually like Starbucks coffee. I agree. I like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. But it's a different experience, and it's a different customer, and it's a different, it's a different value. Dunkin' Donuts is like st going to a truck stop. Oh God. I, I don't know. Maybe in Jersey. Maybe <laughs> Starbucks is like going to like a high end restaurant. Yeah. That's the difference. <laughs> and so that's that's my comment on pricing strategy without actually directly answering your question. <laughs> no, this is all excellent stuff. OK, so I, I want to wrap up for you because you've been so generous with your time and I appreciate sure. it. So I I like to end every interview with a series of questions. I've been kind of changing them up. It was supposed to be like the same five, but. Whatever. Oh, kind of like an inside the actor's studio. Oh, yeah, but you know what, questions. it's my podcast, so I get to do what I want. <laughs> yes, you do. Okay, so if you were going to write life's instruction manual, God. what would be like? You're asking a COO about an instruction manual? Well, you, you should this, know, you probably have one. You think this is a quick question? God. You probably have a life's instruction <laughs> I do. What would be like the first thing you can think of that would have to go in it? I'm so, I'm so literal, Christina. So I guess it would be open your eyes. What do you like be more? If you're going to live life, the first thing you have to do is open your eyes. Then you start, I mean, Literally, life's instruction manual, wake up, open your eyes, <laughs> yawn, get out of bed. It's the step-by-step -step procedure for how you do it. So it starts, I think, with open your eyes. Okay. Well, that's good because the name of my show is Wake Up Call. Well, there you go. Thanks for tying that in. And then it's also, in some way, I suppose I could make it be philosophical. Like, yes. Well, you've got plenty of time to write it. I <laughs> Let me know. When I have you... no time to write it. Time is ticking away. So if you won a hundred million dollars in the lottery, what would you do with your life? Like, would you keep doing what you're doing? I would be the world's, I, I would be the AARP Instagram travel music influencer. You're that not I... old. So, so not AARP. Um, I would absolutely, I would live on a yacht. I would absolutely live on a yacht and I would take that everywhere. Can I go with you? <laughs> sure. Because it's going to, if I want a hundred million dollars, it would be a big enough yacht that I could send you to the other side of it. Yes. When you get sick of me. Uh -huh. Okay. What's the best life advice that you ever got? <laughs> Do you think I should have given these to you in advance? Wow. Yeah. Um, 
So you forget that I work with R. John Robbins, Ali, Erica, uh, Christopher Anderson, Kristen David. I get a lot of life advice. I get more life advice than your average person. But is there something that pops up over and over and over and over? You know, I'll say uh, there's two things. My, it comes down to my grandfather. My grandfather told me someone that will lie to you will steal from you. I think that's very good advice. Yeah. And that sticks with me. And then he also told me if you chase two rabbits, you're going to lose them both. <laughs> he, he was stubborn. Did I mention he was did I mention he's from the deep south? That is a southern um, thing for sure. What the hell does that even mean? I got to sit and figure it out. If you chase two rabbits, you're going to lose them both. Um, <laughs> means pick one thing and go for it. He was talking to me in the he was talking to me about it in the context of boys. <laughs> but I found that it applies really freaking well to business also. <laughs> I like, love that. Be single be single minded in in your approach to success. Because if you're chasing too many things at once, you'll lose them both. Yes, I think I saw a quote recently that said something like I'm going to screw it up. You can do anything, but you can't do everything. Yes. Yeah. Have yes. you heard that before? Yes. That, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, final question. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Get over yourself. What does that mean? Do you think that you were, uh, and I think this might be a, a Southern phrase, were you too big for your britches? I took myself very seriously. Um mistakes seemed mistakes seemed like they were going to be the end of the world i had yeah uh get over yourself like nobody thinks about you as much as you think about yourself <laughs> nobody nobody's paying attention to you go ahead and do that thing because if you fail no one's going to know like quit quit being so afraid yeah i there's an expression that i've heard that in your 20s um you know, you think everybody's watching you or, you know, you care too much what everybody thinks. In your 30s, you realize that you don't care anymore. In your 40s, you realize nobody's thinking about you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. You were really generous with your time. Thank you for not getting bored and <laughs> telling me how to go. Thank you for something you have to do. I know. Thanks for not kicking me off. No way. You'll, ed you'll edit out all the boring stuff anyway. Uh, I mean, I'll edit some stuff, but I don't think any of it was boring. If there's anything that you go to sleep tonight and you're like, oh, God, why did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me know. And um, but thank you. I thought this was great. And you have you are such a wealth of information and experience and knowledge. You really That's are. It's so fun. So, and thank I, you so much. You said so many good things about Chris Anderson, Arjun, Erica, and, and I agree with that. But you, in my book, you're right up there with them. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> Wait, I, John always tells me bless your heart is not a compliment. Oh, no, that's, oh, bless your heart. Oh, that, okay. <laughs> okay. Or, you know, Christina, bless her heart. That's, <laughs> when they clutch the pearls with the blessing of the heart. <laughs> That's when, <laughs> that's when it's a big problem. Okay, I'll I'll look out for that. But thank you, and and I do mean it. You're you're right up there. It, 
as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you, love. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.